and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi. Hi. Today, we have a conversation between LARB Editor and Publisher, Tom Lutz, and LARB Founding Editor and Journalist, Lori Weiner who are interviewing Seth Greenland, a writer and producer, as well as a member of LARB's board, about his new novel, The Hazards of Good Fortune. This is the old LARB Radio Hour crew, so this is also a reunion of sorts. Right, before all of us started, staged our coup. They have paved the the way they walked so we could run. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Can't wait to hear this reunion and the conversation that they had about Seth's book. Okay, so the next voices you hear will not be our lovely voices, but rather the voices of Tom, Lori, and Seth. Hello, Radioland Podcastville and all the ships at sea. Welcome to the reunion show of the original LARB Radio Hour. My name is Seth Greenland, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. Hi, Lori. I am so excited to be here. Hi, Tom. Seth, you sound more excited than I happen to know that you actually are. (laughs) What's that about? (laughs) I thought I needed to bring the energy up. Speak to the brio. (laughs) Get Get the thing happening that we need to do the magic that we're recreating from two, three years ago. Is it three years ago? Well, we started about three years ago. Yeah, we stopped doing the show together in November of 2016. Okay, let me ask you, Seth, why did we stop doing the radio show? Well, I stopped doing it. Yeah, why, Seth? My resignation from the fun-filled half hour that we did every week for a year and a half had to do with my depression as a result of the election of President Trump. That's not it at all. What happened, (laughs) what happened, although it was horrifying when Trump was elected, what happened was I was writing a novel called The Hazards of Good Fortune. What a coincidence. And the radio show was taking up an awful lot of my time and I couldn't complete the novel and do the show. And Uh, with regret and chagrin, I had to tender my resignation. So did you ever finish writing the novel? I finished. Good question. I finished writing the novel. It was published on August 21st, and here we are. Congratulations. Oh, Thank yeah. You. So what's it about? Well. <laughs> no, we're here to talk about the novel. We've uh, all read it, and we love it. And, and we're we, very uh, proud of you. Thank yeah. you. It's fantastic. And where'd you get that great title? It's called The Hazards of Good Fortune, and it comes from a title of a 19th century novel by William Dean Howells, called A Hazard of New Fortune, that my friend Tom Lutz, Ah. that would be you, suggested when I was casting about for a title for this large, broad-shouldered New York novel that I was working on. You suggested the title, Todd? I did. Well, I suggested that he just use Howell's title over again. That is exactly right. Tom said, like, don't bother really changing a word. But it was right to change it. I think so. Yeah, I think so. To have it be an echo rather than a mirrored reflection mm-hmm. of the Howells title. Right. But the Howells novel, the reason I mentioned it is because it is also a novel about New York. It's a novel that is about all of the different classes and all the different people in New York. It's about this kind of mixing that happens as the economy roils its way through its changes, as people's fortunes rise and fall, as people 
try to make careers in New York. There's all sorts of reasons why your novel and the Howells novel have echoes, not just in the title, but throughout. Oh, without a doubt. That was the thinking behind calling it that in the sense that I wanted to evoke the idea of the 19th century novel, because when I set out to write The Hazards of Good Fortune, what I wanted to do was write a big novel set in New York with a social realist base and evoke the idea of the 19th century novels that I've always loved. In terms of your body of work, it is you've written five novels, is that yes. right? And this is the first one that takes on a very wide canvas that talks about the intersection of race and wealth and poverty and all of these things. It's a very big, ambitious canvas. Did you just feel you were ready to tackle something larger, yeah. having written? Yeah. The last book I wrote, I Regard Everything, was a love story and kind of a chamber piece written in two alternate first persons, chapter by chapter. And I, after having done something like that, I wanted to see if I could take on a much larger canvas, something more ambitious, something that would be holding a mirror up to what was going on in the country and to see if I could pull it off. Because for me, really, since I was starting out as a reader in middle school, reading Dickens for the first time, these are the novels that really got my motor running more than any others. These big, multi-layered stories that reflected society from the bottom to the top and told us about how people were living at a particular time. And I wanted to see if I could do that for our time. And although the book is set in 2012, it's pretty much, things haven't changed that much. Maybe just to give listeners a better understanding, we should talk about who the main players are in the book so they can get a sense of what the structure is that we're talking about. That's a great idea. Let me jump in for a second, though, and say there's one other thing I forgot to say about A Hazard of New Fortunes, the Howells book. It is about the reason that the Los Angeles Review of Books exists, which is that the main character in that book, which you don't have anybody like him, he comes from Boston to New York to do a literary magazine because the literary center of the country is moving from Boston to New York. It's about the kind of where the center of literary power is. Your characters have nothing to do with the literary world. They are completely non-literary. True. But the change in the title, The Hazards of Good Fortune, signals also something that's happening in the book, which is that the wheel is turning and that those on the top of the power heap are starting to slide down as other people are coming up. And there's a kind of a change in the whole power structure. And the person at the top who will be, as you say in the book, thrown into the volcano is Jay Gladstone, who is a billionaire. He is white. He owns a basketball team. He made his fortune, or rather his family made the fortune before he was born in real estate. And a lot of their units are rented out to people who don't have a lot of money. And so the whole economic structure is he's at the very top, wheels turning. People are jockeying for the new power. And the book is structured in alternating chapters between four quadrants. And Jay Gladstone is the first quadrant. And the second one is that of Dag Maxwell, who's the star player on the basketball team he owns. The third quadrant is his daughter, Aviva, who's a student at a liberal arts college who has fallen in with some student radicals. And the fourth quadrant is that of a character called Christine Lupo, who is the district attorney 
of Westchester County, where Jay has a weekend house, and she is running for governor. And the story is told through the perspectives of these four people. There's also the trophy wife, Nicole, who does set the plot in motion. That is Jay's trophy wife, which I think it's fair to call her that. Yeah, well, more than a trophy wife. She worked for a congressional committee and was a very beautiful woman, so she was able to become a model and was looking for a soft landing and married a rich guy, which is something that never happens in New York. I've never heard of that. (laughs) A lot of people, it's not just Howells, it's not just the Howells reference, right? A lot of the people that have reviewed the book have noticed there's a lot of what the academics call intertextuality, right? (laughs) There's a lot of, there's a lot of reference to other books. Jay Gladstone, our our hero, is somehow related to J.G., Jay Gatsby in the Fitzgerald's novel of New York. And there are lots of others, but were you thinking about Fitzgerald? Well, I was thinking about Fitzgerald because much of the novel is set in this gilded world, but I was thinking about other books as well. And something that critics have noticed are the resemblances between my book and The Bonfire of the Vanities, which was written in the 80s. But what I tried to do that was different than Tom Wolfe is write something that took a more humane view of the characters. Wolfe's book is more of a lacerating satire than what I wrote. I was trying to render the characters more three-dimensionally psychologically than Wolf bothered to do. And if you do that as a writer, I think you can't help but being more humane as you get to a deeper level of understanding with who you're writing about. Yeah, I think that we feel for Jay Gladstone. He is our protagonist, but we feel for him more, much more than we felt for Wolf's protagonist in that... What was his name again? Sherman Sherman, McCoy. Oh, right. In that Jay is the one who is being taken down by many different forces at once. And we are allowed into his consciousness a lot. And we do laugh at some of his, of the way he looks at the world. But we do feel for him as he is thrown from the top of the heap. I'm going to be like Jacques Le Fataliste's horse. You know, like every time Jack gets lost in thought, his horse just makes his way back to the water fountain and starts drinking again. <laughs> I'm just going to keep coming back to these literary references because I think it's really interesting the way they are, in a sense, so obvious. That is, they pop out at me as a reader, but they are not even that important somehow. So let me ask you about this one. Aviva, the daughter, mm-hmm. the radical daughter. Right has some kind of relation to the radical daughter in American Pastoral, in Philip Roth's American Pastoral, doesn't she? Yeah, in the sense that she would have to any number of student radicals who come from wealthy backgrounds. You know, Kathy Boudin comes to mind, who was in the townhouse that blew up in Greenwich Village back in the 1970s. And Hearst, who you, of course, talk about. Yeah. Oh, right. They're doing a play based on the Patty Hearst kidnapping in my novel. Yeah, that was something that interested me. And the idea that somebody from a privileged background could be radicalized out of guilt and other feelings of justice, of the need to right a wrong. And coming from her position of great wealth, of course, to me, that's a more interesting character. You know, someone who can turn her back on all that privilege and to take up the cause of the less fortunate. And Roth does that, of course, in American Pastoral and does it quite well. And yeah, there's an absolute echo of that novel in The Hazards of Good Fortune. But to Laurie's point, she's a more human character, it seems to me, than Roth's. Yeah. So Roth's turns into a kind of a freak, right, who Roth, stops bathing. R- Roth's and, character is a demon. And she has some mental illness, yeah. I think, which Aviva does right. not. Roth draws that character relatively two-dimensionally. 
I think. And I can say that as a big fan of Philip Roth, I don't think the character is entirely successful. Yeah. You do feel great compassion for her father, Swede Lvov, in American Pastoral, but the character, her name is Mary, I think, is just a horrible person who hates her family and hates her background and mm. is not drawn with an ounce of complexity. And what I try to do in The Hazards of Good Fortune is give every character their interiority to endow them with complexity. And so all of them are just one degree or another sympathetic. So as the wheel turns and as Jay is thrown from his throne, what he learns or how he then sees the world is a large part of the book. What would you say that he, how does he change? Well, he changes only in the sense that he understands that it's no longer the time of people like Jay Gladstone and society has moved on and he needs to figure out a way of being in the new world. You know, the book begins with an epigraph which says there arose a new king in Egypt which knew not Joseph, which is from the Bible. And the implication being things change and those who were privileged are no longer privileged and a new privileged group is arising. And if your name is Jay Gladstone, you're not in it. One of the things I really enjoy about the novel is how the incoming power structure is every bit as self-interested and manipulative as the old power structure was, which doesn't say much for the arc of justice necessarily, bending the right way. Well, here's the thing, and this is one of the things I was writing about. What Jay Gladstone does not understand is that the world is getting woke. And so as the non-woke are being replaced by the woke, what happens? Well, the behavior of the woke is just as appalling as that of the non-woke because they're human beings. And human beings, whatever their politics, whatever their philosophies, whatever their religion, whatever defines them, ultimately cannot get away from their essence, which is their humanness. And that's what the book is about. And so everyone behaves badly and everyone is sympathetic to a degree and everyone is human. And that's the book that I was trying to write. And there's no political agenda to the book beyond that. I think the book can be completely misread as political in a certain way, but it's not. What the book is about is human beings and how they behave under pressure. But Jay is the one who is learning the right things in his voyage. And the people coming up maybe are learning the wrong things, for not, instance. Not entirely. Well, for instance, the DA has a moment where she feels Jay's humanity and doubts her vociferousness in trying to pin him. And then she lets that go. She's driven by ambition. She sets herself up as someone who is going to avenge a wrong, that she is going to act somehow in the name of social justice. And of course, she's as self-interested as anyone else. And I guess that's what makes some people call the book satire. But the book, the book is not satire, really, in my view. The book is just revelatory in terms of human behavior. Your argument is that it's realism. Exactly right. Right. Exactly and, right. I, and I want to talk about it in a second, but there one other, your mention of people behaving badly under pressure. Another intertext is Theodore Dreiser's novel of New York, Still An American Carrie. Tragedy, mm -hmm. because there's a, the kind of moments in which things go really, really wrong, where people die, are moments that are kind of accidental, like Clyde Griffith's girlfriend drowning. He doesn't actually drown her. He gets tried for the, her murder, but he doesn't actually drown her. He just doesn't save her, right? So there's a kind of accidental failure to act rather than a well, bad I'm, action. I'm, right now I'm going to pretend that I read An American Tragedy. Okay, go and ahead. You will <laughs> let's, let's love see, it. <laughs> you should definitely read it. And, and what I will say is, and I actually read a summation of it the other day in a Zadie Smith short story that Tom was kind enough to send me. 
And so I know more or less what happened in the story and someone drowns and someone could save them and chose not to save them. And that is similar to a crucial turning point in the hazards of good fortune and that there is a terrible thing that happens in which someone lacks agency and ultimately the house comes down on this person. And Mm -hmm. we can say it's Jay Gladstone, I suppose, without giving too much away. Although whether or not they had agency is something that other characters and readers will Mm -hmm. continue to debate. Right. Well, it's an accident, but the structure of what happens is set up by Jay Gladstone. And that's right. So that's right. The Um, important thing um, is that it's a tragedy, not so much who caused it, but that the tragedy occurred. And it can be fascinating to parse how it came about. But of course, what drives the storytelling is that a tragedy occurred. You've been listening to a conversation between Tom Lutz, Lori Weiner, and Seth Greenland on the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We will return to their conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We are here with Fran Leibowitz. Fran Leibowitz needs no introduction, and so... Fran is here to recommend a book for us. Fran, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a book which I believe will be out within the next few weeks. It is a book of stories by Deborah Eisenberg called Your Duck is My Duck. Yes, Deborah Eisenberg is fantastic. I actually have the book on my desk. I haven't read it yet. Oh, you have to read it. Tell us more about it. Tell us about your interest in Deborah's work. I know you guys are friends and the book itself. Yes, we are friends, but if... She was my friend, and I didn't think she was a fantastic writer. I wouldn't be recommending her books. I'm not that friendly. (laughs) Um, It's a book of stories. Um, She is, I think, without question, the best living American short story writer. But I don't think there's anyone even close. This book I have read twice, and it's still on my coffee table, which means I'm not ready to put it in its proper place in my perfectly organized bookshelves because I'm going to read it again. That is quite a recommendation. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? It's Your Duck is My Duck by Deborah Eisenberg. Thank you so much, Fran. That was Fran Leibowitz giving us a book recommendation. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to a conversation between Tom Lutz, Lori Weiner, and Seth Greenland. So realism. Let's Go. talk about realism. Let's do. Um, you know, uh, you and I both have recently read Rachel Cusk. Yes. Which is a really interesting new kind of, right, it's outline. We like her. Outline realism. It's a it's a uh, realism with a missing center in, a, in an interesting way. And I, as you know, just finished reading 7,000 pages of Carl Ofnowsker. And I commend you for that. And that's a certain kind of realism. But you're, the realism you're going after is not Cusk, it's not Nausgaard, it's a, it's a kind of an old-fashioned realism. I, and I'm not even going to push back against that adjective. It's very old-fashioned. If by old-fashioned you mean a lively narrative engine that is relentless from chapter to chapter. And the book is, it's a long book, as we have been alluding to by, you know, referring to it as a 19th century novel, big New York novel. And the way for me to make a reader want to keep turning the pages in a long book is to 
make events happen. And Knausgaard takes a different point of view, as you and I have, have discussed. Mm -hmm. But for me, the idea is uh, to lead the reader through the maze by a series of events that begin to overlap and let the reader try to figure out where the paths between the different characters are going to begin to cross and how ultimately it's it's going to resolve. And it's an entirely different narrative strategy than writers like Cusk and Knausgaard are using. And to me, it's the most satisfying kind of read. The Hazards of Good Fortune is the kind of book that when, when I hear something like that is out there, someone has written something like that, which does not happen very often these days, I can't wait to get my hands on it because it's 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 like someone telling you a bedtime story. It's there's a you're lulled into this state where all you care about is this world that this writer has created. You cannot wait to find out what happens next, and and you're going at your own speed as opposed to a movie or in a play or a television show. And it's the most voluptuous way to consume narrative. If if you're me, and with a nod to the 19th century, you published it in installments, as Dickens did. Um, uh -huh, as right. Tom Wolfe did that's with right. uh, Bonfire. He published it in installments in Rolling Stone. Um, and you published it in installments in something called... The Los Angeles The Los Review. Angeles Review of Books. Of Books. Yeah. So did you, did you enjoy doing that, putting out the installments? I was, you know, I would like to thank you both right now for the opportunity to do that. I thought it was, uh, it was terrific to be able to, to have that luxury of seeing it appear week by week in the months leading up to its publication. And it was uh, it was a terrific experience. To, okay. I don't, I'm not okay. sure that anybody read it that way. I, but Of course they did. But I, I want to challenge you to do something different next time. Go ahead. Which is really Dickens the thing. And do it in installments before it's finished. Oh, as I'm composing. As you're composing. Yeah, that would be, a, that would be an interesting that's challenge. A, that's a high-wire act. That is that. really a... I cannot come up with a better metaphor. That is really a high-wire act. Uh when Wolf did that for uh, Rolling Stone, when he published a Bonfire back in the 80s, he then took all of it. He published the entire thing in a serialized version, rewrote for a year. Oh, wow. Uh, and then okay. it appeared, yeah, I think, about 18 months later, uh, after the last installment had appeared in Rolling Stone. And I didn't read it in Rolling Stone, so I don't know how much he changed. Right. But I can only imagine if he took a year to do it, he did quite a bit of tinkering. And uh, it's it's a it holds up well. I reread it about five years ago, and it's uh, it's a you good novel. You reread it while you were writing this. No, this book? no, I reread it before I started to make sure I wasn't going to steal too much. And mm -hmm. when you started the book, it, you America was slightly different than it was when you finished it. Things it a, are it, changing. Well, it was a lot different. Time. I mean, what you're alluding to obviously is Trump being elected, and so things changed radically between when I started and when I finished. And we're in a different place right now, uh, but certain things are eerily similar. For example, the book is set in 2012 and the student radicals in 2012, there was not a lot of radicalism on campus. And I would, I, this was kind of a, uh, an interest of mine because for the last 20 years, I would say to people when the conversation ran dry, where has the student left gone? And it was, it was fascinating. Wow, that's a dry conversation. Yeah. I mean, then, that has to that go would further, really it would dry. Further, it would further kill the conversation, <laughs> and then I wouldn't be invited back. But, it was, but kidding aside, it was an interesting thing to think about. This, the student left more or less vanished as a, as a cultural force. And then in the last few years, the last two, three years, came roaring back. But in 2012, was quiescent. But not in not in the hazards of good fortune. They're anything but quiescent in that book. Mm -hmm. So 
but but other than that, you're right. Things are things are different now in in terms of Trump. But in the book, it, chapter two is about a police shooting, and we do seem to have those with with really disturbing regularity right now. Uh, the income gap is perhaps the greatest problem facing our country today. That's uh, very much reflected in the book. And uh, 2012 is is horribly like 2018 in in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Back back to realism for a minute. I mean, obviously, Tom the, loves the, I do love I do love the I, I I do love thinking about realism. I've been thinking about realism for a long time. I, my, my graduate work was in the period of American realism, and so I had, I was reading theories of realism. And one of the things that I got very interested in was the relationship, as you as you said, um, it's an old fashioned realist novel because it's driven by plot, mm-hmm. right? Um, and one of the things that we wondered about was whether plot was realistic. Right, that is because plot is something that um, that has that pulls things together, that pulls strands together that in real life maybe in reality don't always get pulled together. Where things have a seem seem in retrospect to have a purpose, which they don't always in reality, and that kind of thing. And so there were a couple of books like uh, the Making of Americans, the Gertrude Stein crazy long Gertrude Stein novel, where she decided she was going to represent everybody in the world, and that was going to be the ultimate realism. Uh, and then she, you know. 1500 pages and she lost interest and stopped. Um, but she, uh, what a shame, right? <laughs> I know, could have kept going. Yeah, I would have um, loved to have read that. But that and uh, William Carlos Williams' White Mule, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're, I think, experiments in thinking about realism and um, as, against the idea of plot. Well, you make, a, you make a terrific point because plot is not realistic. You're right. Plot is, is a trick that that an author or a playwright will do or a screenwriter to to carry people along in the story that reflects what they say is reality but in fact is completely artificial you're right the, i mean any any piece of art is artifice really so a novel of course is artifice mm-hmm. so realism in a way can't possibly exist. But this thing we call realism somehow reflects our lives to a degree that people will give up that they'll suspend their disbelief about all your your authorial trickery and go along with you for hundreds and hundreds of pages because they're carried along by your skill at bedazzling them, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I've been very interested in the way the TV has embraced a certain kind of plotlessness right right atlanta is 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 one example um where stuff kind of happens but it doesn't really matter it's not it's not plot in the old right. in the old sense uh certainly not in the three accents right and and uh pamela adlon you know there there's there are little plot things going on there are little things moving the moving the narrative along, but they really don't matter. Larry David, who blurred right. your book, right, right, is kind of famous for having these things that are all tempest in a teapot kind of mm-hmm. things. And that's what, I don't know if you anybody remembers this. Uh, I guess I'm the only person that was alive then, but when Sinclair Lewis does his Nobel Prize speech in the, in the 20s, he claims that Howells um, was writing tempests and teapots, right? That he didn't have... He wasn't really talking about real stuff. He was talking about tiny, uh, intimate stuff that didn't matter, right? You were uh, alive in the 20s? Yeah, well, it seems like it. Okay. But, you know, the, the examples you cite, other than Howells, those television examples you mm-hmm. cited, those are all half-hour comedies. And comedy works differently, actually, because in comedy, uh, you know, really, 
you're dealing with the attitude to what's going on rather than what's going on. Whereas drama is much more about what's going on. And if you look at the shows that people are drawn to, the really popular ones, they, they tend to be quite plot heavy, actually. And is, take a show like Mad Men, which is a wonderful show about complex characters with a ton of story going on. Right. right, that that right. show was absolutely. very very plot dense. Absolutely, that's and that's realism. Absolutely, exactly. Right. Classic the, realism. The realism right. that we're talking about, which mm-hmm. is of course completely fake. Right. But people get fooled into thinking that's realistic, and we call it realism. Right. Well, because plot has a kind of explanatory power. Mm-hmm. Right. It it uh, plot is one of the systems in which we put things together to try to understand how the world works. No, well, that's it's right. Not and, only authors who use plot, we. Everyone does when as they try to make sense of their life. You know, we tell stories uh, to our friends and to each other and to ourselves about our lives, and we tend to make stories out yeah. of them. Yeah. Why did so and so do such and such? Uh, no, that's right. There's, yeah. there's a. I, I would say, I was going to say an addiction to plot, but plot the addiction is the wrong word. Plot is baked into our DNA. It's we ha- we have a psychological. It's a psychological necessity for understanding the world. Mm-hmm. And and it's the, the the basis of drama, really, is that it locks into that thing that's going on in everyone's mind. And it's mm-hmm. why it's been around as long as the civilization has been around. A lot of these shows are, are dramedies, right? And mm-hmm. so it's, and and there's a there's if you if you think about the relationship of your book to the some of the people I mentioned, Dreiser, mm-hmm. not not a laugh riot, Dreiser, right? And uh and Howell's not a comedian most 99% of the time. And this book has a lot of humor. I mean, for everything like the arena, Sanitary Solutions Arena, right? I mean, there's, there's just a lot of jokes in it. Yeah, yeah, I thought that it was going to be a satire when I when I read that. Well, you, you know, you for all the influences you've mentioned, and they've all been spot on, the one you haven't mentioned, which in many ways is the most obvious one, is Dickens, Really, because if you take a Dickens novel like Our Mutual Friend, which in many ways is the quintessential 19th century novel, you know, you've got every level of society is being explicated in that book. Just strand upon strand uh, of, of, of storytelling that from the lowest to the highest and, and infused with, with very intense drama and also Dickens's uh, feel for comedy as well. And in a way, he was my most profound model for, for this novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the names are, are kind of funny. Sure. In the same way that Dickens always no, did. That, and, that's yeah, right. There's right. Uh, you know, the character of uh, the, the main character's lawyer's name is Herman Doomer, <laughs> really, which is, I thought that would be a name Dickens would have been happy with. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you talk about your book as being old-fashioned, you're referring to the fact that also I think the audience has become more fractured, the reading audience, and we tend to read about different cultures and subcultures and people aren't doing the big story right now. It's, it is a little bit out of fashion because that's just not the no, way that, people are writing. That's right. right. People, people really are interested in hyper specificity. You know, I, I read the New York times every day and I'm very curious about the books they write about. And the other day they wrote about a, a, a memoir. The author was a gay Filipino man who's in the country illegally, apparently wrote a terrific book. Yesterday, they reviewed big, big spread in the arts page, a novel by a young female Liberian writer. Again, gave it a wonderful review. 
And these are all voices that should be heard, and they're hyper-specific. And this is what people are interested in now, for the mm -hmm. most part. And uh, I applaud that. And mm -hmm. I think it's fantastic that these novels or memoirs that the New York Times would not have been writing about probably 10, 15 years ago are getting that kind of coverage. It's great. The kind of book that I wrote is not in fashion right now. Mm -hmm. And that's okay with you. Completely. Yeah. You know, you write you write the books that you want to write, and you have, you know, you, you have these these things in you and what comes out is what wants to come out. And so, you know, there, there are, there are, uh, writers who have talked about, um, like I remember Gilbert Sorrentino, he would write a novel because he would get an idea of something that he couldn't figure out how to do. So how would you write a novel that was based on the tarot deck? So he writes, uh, how many cards are in the tarot deck? 64 something like that. Anyway, he wrote a 64 chapter book and each one is based on a tarot card. And it was just, he set up a problem for himself. Mm -hmm. Is that what you did here? Did you set up the problem of like, how do I write a big canvas it's, old fashioned? That's exactly what I yeah. did. You know, my books have been for the most part, all different. You know, the first, the first two were, were Los Angeles social realist novels. And I wrote a crime novel and a love story. And then I thought I'd do try to write a big contemporary American novel that would reflect the techniques used in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that I was very self-conscious when I went about it. That's exactly what I tried to do. And was part of it a desire to write a eulogy for a kind of privilege that is passing out? That is a great question. What uh, The short answer is yes. The, the character of Jay Gladstone, you, you haven't mentioned, is Jewish. And that was a part of who he is as a character and a, a significant part. And what I wanted to write about was the fact that the Jews are privileged culturally. I think in the sixties and seventies, there was a moment where it became very hip to be Jewish and in the popular culture. And you saw that reflected in a lot of different, uh, you know, be beginning with Lenny Bruce and going Bob on Dylan and Bob Dylan, Norman Mailer, you know, all, all kinds of mm -hmm. Leonard Cohen, Freedom all, Riders. All, all kinds of things reflect exactly what we're talking about. And that, that period, Kinky Friedman, <laughs> And, and that period has has drawn to a close, and it's become much more complex now. And I wanted to write about the passing of that time and how a character who didn't really understand that that time was passing would be affected by the passing of that time. Mm. I, I know I don't know how much we can talk about it as passing when you know Kushner's in the White House. I mean, it's it's not like the Jewish real estate families are are gone. But Kushner's in the White House because Trump got elected president. That's mm -hmm. a whole different thing. And by the way, this is... And Stephen Miller yeah, would not be is, in the White House otherwise. The, the, the pride yeah, this of is, Santa Monica. This is, this is a rabbit hole. That, this is a rabbit hole that I think we probably should, could more profitably avoid. Okay, but <laughs> let's just turn to one thing we talked about before, which was atonement. Mm. And uh, what Jay... Did we talk about atonement before? Well, we talked about it downstairs. Oh. And to not, be clear, not the oh, Ian McEwen novel. Okay. Yeah, not the Ian McEwen novel. But yeah. the idea of Jay learns something and he atones in in a way. And, well, I, I'm afraid to talk about it because I'll give away the ending. Yeah, we can't, but, we can't talk about it too much, right? But but, in, but I guess what I what struck me about it, and and maybe this is what you're getting at, uh, is that the that the it's not a crime and punishment novel. It's a crime and atonement novel. Somehow, even though I think the atonement happens pretty much off stage, it, it continues it, after it, the it, book it, ends. It, it, it continues after the book yeah. ends. Exactly. the The book continues in the reader's mind. Hopefully, well, that goes to what we were speaking about earlier, which is the characters, a fully rendered three dimensional 
man who is involved in something that that affects him terribly and uh he has to wrestle with that through the course of the book and that's what the that's what drives the story at that point is what is going on with that character psychologically right but i guess you know partly the reason to bring it up now is that it, it's also jewish right i mean the, there's no yes. christian day of atonement there's a jewish day of atonement and and in fact the word is used in the novel when at when jay uncharacteristically goes to a temple that's right he's not a religious person and as a result of what has happened he feels drawn to a uh, a sacred space and he goes into this place and he prays without giving too much away mm. well, another thing i like about entering jay's mind is that he's always assessing how other people are assessing him constantly even before he really runs into trouble which is is part of being on the top of the mountain and you have this you know viewpoint and he's aware that he is becoming embattled and he's constantly trying to read often he reads it wrong how people are perceiving him and that goes on from beginning to end but becomes much more thoughtful i think as the book goes on well he's he's a kingly figure and he views himself as a benevolent despot and he as a result tries to manage the people beneath him in a way that is to everyone's benefit. And of course it all goes entirely haywire. The book is the hazards of good fortune. The author is Seth Greenland. We had a lot of fun doing this. I think we should kick Dea and Eric and Kate out. Don't we you should take, take over. The radio over. I think we need to come back. Will, what do you, is that, a, you think that makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Will's with us. Will said it's, yes. We're going to have a, we're going to have a coup. Pirates are taking over the LARP radio. <laughs> the old people are coming back. <laughs> All right, Seth Greenland, uh, pleasure talking to you about your new book. Uh, how, how great to be back. And uh, and we'll do it again uh, next time you publish. Or uh, next time any of us publishes. There we go. The second annual Lambda Lit Fest hits Los Angeles for a week of events featuring LGBTQ writers, artists, and community members from September 29th to October 6th. All events are free and open to the public, including a live taping of the LARB Radio Hour in conversation with Patrice Cullors, author of When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, which will take place at 6 p.m. Saturday, October 6 at Fiesta Hall in Plummer Park. The Lambda Lit Fest is also running workshops on everything from writing LGBTQIA fiction to manifestos and getting started in new media, all for the low cost of $15 per ticket. For more information, including a festival schedule and RSVP options for workshops and select events, see lambdalitfest.org. That's L-A-M-B-D-A litfest.org. See you there. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 